Next month we're going camping. If you heard those words, especially if you were a little kid and your dad said that to you, you'd be pretty excited. You'd have questions like, when is the day going to come? What exactly is going to take place? And, and how are all the details going to come together? Depending on whether you had a good relationship with your dad or not, you might start to wonder, is he going to uh, keep his word? How are we going to pay for it? And who's going to get to go? Just me? It's going to be my sister and my mom too? Like, who's going to get to go? The people exiled from Judah found themselves in a similar situation at the time when Cyrus ruled in Persia. They'd been in exile for nearly 70 years. The new generations were likely wondering uh, if God would fulfill his word. The older generation remembered what it, things had been and wondered probably whether the new work of God would ever compare to what they had lost. If you were one of the people of Judah, how long would you wait for God to fulfill his word? What would be a clear demonstration of his faithfulness to you? Ezra 1 and 2, I believe, teaches us to rejoice in God's faithfulness through rulers, riches, and a remnant. We see, first of all, that God appoints rulers to begin his work. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, he stirs rulers up to fulfill his promises. Cyrus fulfills God's word from 150 years earlier. This was from the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. Let me read that for you. God says this regarding Cyrus. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Though you have not known me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. So God had promised through the words of Isaiah well before the captivity that after he was going to use Cyrus, his servant, to restore the people. Cyrus is thus motivated by God, despite and regardless of his own motives, to send the proclamation to return the people to the land. So if we think about the policy of Babylon was to capture people and to carry the best of them away into captivity. The, po the policy of the Assyrians was to kill a lot of them and send their own people to replace them. The policy of the Medes and Persians was different. It was essentially parallel to, to some extent, what happened under Rome, which is, we'll let you worship your gods and we'll let you live in your land as long as you continue to pay tribute to us. And so their approach to government was much more friendly to the religions of the peoples. And so in connection with their coming to power, they said, all right, we're going to send peoples back to their lands. We're going to let them worship their gods in their lands. And so we have uh, what could sound uh, in verse 2 as sort of a declaration of belief in God, right? But historically, we know that Cyrus and the other kings of Persia were polytheistic, and they worshiped false gods like Marduk and others of, that they sort of inherited from the Babylonians. 
and so and their parallel gods in their own um, organization of deities. And so God stirs up rulers to fulfill his promises, but he also makes rulers favorable to his people when necessary to do his work. Cyrus acknowledges God as the reason for his rule and the reason for rebuilding the temple, but probably not as a genuine and full convert to Judaism. And we saw this in verse 2. The Lord has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This, this too is kind of a fascinating thing. You see the hand of God working sovereignly through the heart of an apparently pagan king because the, the words that he's saying parallel those of David and of Solomon, right? God wants a house in Jerusalem. We're going to build God a house in Jerusalem. God's going to provide for that house in Jerusalem. There is a, a renewal, a restoration, a repetition of things that have already happened earlier in the history of Israel. And we see in this God's hand as he is moving the heart of Cyrus to accomplish this work. Cyrus speaks favorably to a captive people in verse 3. Whoever among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So again, there are hints that we could at a surface reading say Cyrus believes in God, but he very much seems to identify this as a um, sort of verse two. The gods have given me the rule of all these peoples. And verse three, you want to go up and worship your God? That's great for you. I'm going to send you back there. So he's accomplishing God's purpose, despite the fact that he is not seemingly a true worshiper of God. We see, continuing through the chapter, God's provi God provides riches to fund his work. God provides riches to fund his work. We see this in verse 4. We see this in verses 6 through 11. And we also see it in chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. Cyrus begins by encouraging support from among the people. Verse 4, Every survivor let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering. So there is an expectation that you need to give something, and then an opportunity for you also to give above and beyond that with the free will offering. And so verse 4 seems to have in view the survivors, some of them are going to go back, and the ones that aren't going back should at least support the work financially. But then when we come to verse 6, there are uh, themes that we see in the book of Exodus, which is the people of Israel are going out from the land of Egypt. And what happens? The Egyptians also give them money and goods and cattle and all those things that they would need on their journey. Same kind of thing seems to happen here. People who have been conquered by the Persians are themselves, though they're not survivors from Israel, particularly from Judah and Benjamin, though they have no vested interest in the God of the Hebrews, they are also giving to support the work of the temple that God's going to establish. So the people and Cyrus give riches to the remnant according to the king's orders, verse 6. And then also the king himself restores, it says, the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. These were the same things of silver and gold that Belshazzar was judged that the night that the Babylon falls, he's judged. There's the writing on the wall. Why? Because he's taking and defiling the, the cups and the other articles from the, the temple that were supposed to be used exclusively in worship of God, this pagan Babylonian king, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, was uh, 
taking them and defiling them and just using them for this sort of drunken party and orgy in worship of his God. And God says, I'm not going to allow this to happen this night. Your kingdom is going to fall. These same articles, the Persians have captured. They could have said, well, we're going to keep these for ourselves in our royal treasury. No, they're restoring them to the people of Israel to take back to the land. So there's this massive amount of wealth that God is providing as riches to accomplish the work that God wants to see accomplished, which is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And there's an itemization of some of these things in verses 9 through 11. 5,400 articles of gold and silver. So the fact that they have a specific count, the fact that they restore all of them, is just again pointing to God's provision for his people in providing for the work. And then the bulk of these two chapters is this idea, thirdly, that God preserves a remnant to carry out his work. We see this in chapter 1, verse 5. The heads of fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So God had preserved Judah and Benjamin. God had also preserved priests and Levites. And this is something I hadn't really considered before. For the temple to be reestablished, who has to be there? Not just people to build the temple itself, but people to serve in the temple. Not just people to serve as priests and make the sacrifices, but also the broader group of the Levites had to be there, the ones who sang songs and worship to God, the ones who cleaned the temple, the ones who had charge of various aspects of the building itself. In order for temple worship to be restored in Jerusalem, God had to preserve not just a handful of people from Judah and Benjamin, but also priests and Levites to work in the temple or else completely change the system, which he does when Jesus comes. But up to that point, God preserves a remnant of people to restore temple worship in Jerusalem. God had preserved them not just for a few years, but for 70 years nearly from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until Cyrus. We see in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. God preserves all the necessary people to restore the temple worship, as I just mentioned. We're not going to read down through the list of every last detail, verses 3 down through verses um, six, 3 through 60, but there is a specific count and a restoration of the people of Israel and the, a restoration, verses 36 and through 39, of the priest and a restoration of the Levites, verses 40 through 60. And so all of these people are specifically counted, volunteer to go back, and God has preserved them to go back and accomplish things in the land. God preserved, I think this is important, a significant number of people. Um, verse 64 says 42,360 plus another 7,300 servants, and then horses, camels, donkeys, and so on. Despite their earlier rebellion despite the fact that they had been in captivity for these many number of years, and despite the fact that some of them probably would have settled into their life in Babylon, there are over 40,000 people that God stirs up their hearts to go back to the land and rebuild the temple and reestablish the worship of God. What conclusion are we supposed to draw from these two chapters? Well, 
we see in chapter 3, which we'll get there hopefully next week, that there is a rejoicing. Verse 11, they say to the Lord, he is good for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Believe that this passage in the context of chapter 3 and the response of the people is calling God's people to rejoice in his faithfulness. God could have demonstrated his faithfulness in a variety of different ways, right? God could have miraculously recreated people. God could have made it so that they were never conquered in the first place. God could have worked this in any number of ways, but the way that he chose to work it was, my people have rebelled, I'm sending them into captivity, I'm going to restore them to the land in direct fulfillment of all the promises that I have made. And so although we are not Israel, our same God works today. And so I think we too are to rejoice in God's work in the same way that the people were supposed to rejoice. There's an article that I'll send you guys um, regarding the fulfillment of the 70 years. Was it actually 70 years? Because from approximately 605 to the 538 when the dec decree is issued is not exactly 70 years. So how are we supposed to understand that? The really short answer would be um, there are at least three different reckonings of the 70 years and all of them do in fact line up with what God had said. There is the time from when the temple is destroyed to the time when the temple is rebuilt. There is the time from when Babylon begins to reign and Israel is under the, the dominion of Babylon. And then there are, uh, there's a third promise, the specifics of which are in the article. All of these things are exactly 70 years. And so God fulfills his word and did not forget, did not overlook, did not fail to follow through with his people. God fulfills his word in keeping these promises that he has made. It would be easy for us to look at this account and say, God's faithfulness, yes, we see it to the people of Israel, but do we actually see it today? I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we see rulers as servants of God, however unwilling, or as enemies? Um, I think it's really easy for us to see our rulers as enemies of God. It's easy to see our rulers as enemies of God to the extent that they promote policies that are immoral in terms of their views on abortion, human sexuality, the worship of the earth as a kind of goddess. All of these sorts of things are pagan ideas and immoral ideas that are being promoted by leaders at both the national and state and sometimes even local levels. Something that I think it was easy for a lot of Christians to forget in the last election cycle is that rulers don't come to power apart from God's sovereign purpose. What I mean by that is, is there corruption in our political system? Absolutely. Can that corruption thwart God's purposes ultimately? No. I think there's a degree to which we think that we deserve to live in peace and safety because we are following God. And I think it's important to remember that when we look at even the near context of the book of Ezra, who are people 
who are following God, what is their experience? Daniel's carried away to Babylon. Jeremiah is rejected by his own people. The fact that they belong to God did not guarantee them a life of peace and safety. And so, so along the same lines in our present day, to the extent that our nation follows God or strays far away from God and God's judgment in lesser and greater ways comes upon our nation, we as God's people are going to share in the experience of the difficulties that come upon our nation as well. This has relevance even when we come to something like the book of Thessalonians. It says we are not, uh, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come and we are not destined for God's wrath. At minimum, that means that we are not going to experience God's eternal and final wrath in the lake of fire toward those who have rebelled in unbelief against him. Satan, all his followers, and the, the demons, and all who have turned away from and rejected the gospel. It may also mean, and I think it does mean, that we will be spared God's end times wrath during the period of the tribulation, but even if it turns out to be that that is not the case, that God preserves us through a period of his wrath instead of from a period of his wrath, if the parallel is Noah being preserved through the ark and the waters of the flood instead of being spared from going in the vicinity of the flood entirely, even if all those things are the case, even if God stops restraining the evils and the, the sin that's in the world like we looked at in Zechariah, like you see in Second Thessalonians 2. Even if God takes his hand away and we experience some measure of the difficulties and great darkness of those days, God is still faithful to his word. And that's true in our daily normal lives right here and right now. Could there come a day in which Christianity is made illegal like it has been in various periods throughout history? Absolutely. At the present moment, it's not that way, but that very well may be coming. But even in a moment like this, it, when it is easy to be discouraged and say, well, this leader is doing this thing that's wrong, and this leader is doing this thing that's wrong, and this leader is doing this thing that's wrong, if God can take the leader of, in that day, the most powerful empire on earth, and say, for whatever motives he thinks he's doing it, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to restore God's people to fulfill God's promises, to rebuild his temple that my predecessors destroyed. Don't we think God can work through our present system of government, however flawed and corrupt and rebellious against God they are in their intent and their purpose and all the things that they're doing? How, how, how will God bring that about? I think the answer is through the prayers of his people. We see Daniel and others interceding for the people. We see the prophets interceding for the people. We see the people's hearts changing over the course of the exile. To the extent that God's people pray and seek his face and fulfill, for example, what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, to pray for kings and all those who are in authority... I think God will hear an answer. And again, that doesn't mean everything will be easy. That doesn't mean everything will go our way. Life as Christians potentially will become more expensive, more inconvenient, more whatever words we want to come with. But that doesn't mean that God stops working. If God works through Cyrus and says, here is my chosen servant, it is not 
outside of the bounds of application to say that God is working through President Biden and Governor Whitmer and pagans on your local city council. Despite their stated opposition to certain things that are very clearly biblically and morally right. And so I think it's easy for us as believers to sort of have this attitude of the system is broken and corrupt. And I'm not denying there's aspects of it that are. And we have to fix this. And I'm not saying we should completely distance ourselves from politics. But what is going to take place will take place according to God's purposes in fulfillment of his promises in response to the prayers of his people. Not to the extent that we get mad about things online and spend all of our efforts trying to uncover conspiracies. And I'm not denying that there are people who conspire to accomplish their own wicked ends. That, that's happened all throughout history. All I'm saying is, it's not ultimately our job to fix all those things. Do we oppose certain evils? Absolutely. Are things like abortion and child trafficking and all those sorts of things, are all those things wrongs that we should oppose? Absolutely. Are there other wrongs that, depending on our political affiliation, sometimes we're more hesitant to oppose that we should also oppose? Absolutely. But our first and primary job as God's people is to be God's people. And let God turn the, the, the king's heart like rivers of water in his hand. Do we see rulers as servants of God, however unwilling they might be, however blinded they are to the fact that God is accomplishing his purposes through them, or do we see them as enemies? And if we see them as enemies, what does God call us to do? Love your enemies, pray for them, for that God would grant them repentance. Now there comes a moment at which the prayer shifts from God grant so-and-so repentance to God bring them to a righteous punishment for their refusal to repent. But I think we really want to jump really quickly to the imprecatory prayer and not spend much time on the intercessory prayer. And both are necessary in the course of our interaction with people around us. This is perhaps uh, one, an example that you've heard a bunch of times in, if you've been uh, around Christianity, read Christian biographies, but think about the instance where Corrie ten Boom meets the Nazi guard who was directly responsible for the death of her sister Betsy. If that was you, could you forgive that person and see God's hand in bringing him to repentance? It's a hard place to be in, but it's the work that God often does in the world and oftentimes we don't want to see God do that work in the world because then we have to be kind and show love to people who desired the worst against us. The same God works today through rulers as his servants. Again, not in specific fulfillment like Isaiah 45 points to Ezra chapter 1, but in a more broad sense, God can and does accomplish his purpose through the world, rulers of this world so we don't have to fret and scheme and wring our hands and be just distraught about everything. Should we pray? Should we seek to uphold what's right? Should we vote for godly leaders? Absolutely. Should we resort, as Peter did, 
to the sword as a means of thwarting evil moments that God is in fact using in ways we don't understand? I think there's a place for self-defense. I don't think as much as it is an American virtue, I don't think that God calls us as people to repeat the American Revolution. Now, you may have a different opinion, different perspective and conscience on that, but all of the passages in Scripture that, that argue for entrusting your soul to a faithful creator, turning the other cheek, uh, being willing to pay even seemingly unjust taxes through the experience of Jesus and the apostles, I think we as Christians have to wrestle with those things. to recognize that God can use rulers as his servants and to ask ourselves what that might look like and whether we are fulfilling the command in the New Testament to pray for the souls of those rulers. A second point that I think is an important application from these first two chapters is this question. Do you believe that God provides the financial and other means to accomplish the things that he once done. I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of where we are as a church, organizationally, financially, in terms of our resources, right? So it is not an automatic justification that if you can afford a really expensive mode of ministry, that God is happy with it, right? We've got to be careful about going down that line of reasoning because there are massively, from a human perspective, successful so-called ministries that bring in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars that fund extravagant lifestyles for the leaders of what amount to either cults or false teachers. But what I'm talking about is not so much that sort of thing where Clearly, it's marked off by greed. Clearly, it's marked off by deception. Clearly, it's marked off by immorality and infidelity. We can quickly discount those examples as being God's blessing because they're not preaching the gospel and they're not living godly lives. What I'm talking about is not that sort of thing. What I'm talking about is the typical local church. The typical local church funded by the giving of God's people and gathering in a particular place and seeking to do the ministry God has called us to do in that, in that time and in that place. In our personal lives, if we come to a point where we say, you know what, I can't live in my house anymore because I can't keep up with mowing the grass and shoveling the snow and all of those sorts of things, we don't see it as some sort of great evil to move into an apartment or a condo or something like that and say, all right, here's a place where some of these, the burden of responsibility is going to be taken care of by other people. And so that will then free me up to do these other sorts of things. But in the lives of churches, I think it's easy for us to look at it and say, um, I guess the parallel would be, let's say you had a Victorian mansion 
And at one point, you have you and your family living there. And you have, uh, like, a, you say, all right, we're going to do. And then, you know, things start to, to turn the corner. You say, all right, my kids have grown up and moved away. I'm going to uh, turn it into, like, an Airbnb or Verbo or whatever. And I'm not saying those are the best route or that they're the best business model. I'm just saying, as an example, uh, there was a place that Kelly and I went that was in, I think, Marine City. And when we went there, there was a lady who was keeping it up by herself and had it as an Airbnb, and it was a really nice place. And um, happened to go back there um, in some of the moments that we had driving around right after Kelly got diagnosed before she started chemo and didn't have any energy. And we went back by that place, happened to drive by it, and it was sort of decayed and falling apart. And that's just the course of things in the course of people's lives that... Um, things like that take place. I don't know if the lady was still around. It looked like it was for sale. I assume she had had to move somewhere else. Here's the point that I'm trying to make with that. What God calls us to do as a church, and I want you to understand, there was a pastor in the church that I was growing up that when my grandpa died and this pastor took over, he said, God wants you to give money just like people gave money to build the temple, so you need to give money to build the church building. There's no precedent for that in the New Testament. So that was a, a, a false admonition on his part, and I would never want to say anything like that to all of you. What I'm trying to say is the core mission of the church, as we look at it in the New Testament, is to proclaim the gospel and edify fellow believers, right? So, the idea of having, let me give you a more extreme example and then take it down to the one that we're actually thinking about. The extreme example of the 1970s was we have to have an alternative Christian version of everything. We have to have a Christian retirement home. We have to have a Christian school. We have to have a Christian bookstore. We have to have a Christian fitness club. We have to have all of these things in addition to the church. To do all those things, what do you need? Boatloads of money, right? I don't know of offhand a single church that in their heyday in the 70s went that route that still owns all of those things. They've sold the retirement homes. They've closed the bookstores. They, to some extent, have had to close the Christian schools. This is not saying that those people were intentionally or directly disobeying God in their pursuit of those things. My question, looking back on the trajectory of what's happened in the church, even in churches like ours, is to say, was that the best use of money for God's work? And is that the model that we should aspire to? Right? Here's the thing that I think that I would argue that we should consider instead. God called the people to rebuild the temple at a specific time and place to restore worship to the land in fulfillment of his promises. To the extent that you and I are not Israel and we don't have a temple, we're not called to build something that is ornate and is a... Uh, trying to think of how to describe this. It's not supposed to be necessarily a majestic and glorious and eye-catching thing. And in fact, that turns to a negative thing in the time of Jesus because the people said, look at the temple, how beautiful it is. And they had God himself standing right in front of them. And they're like, but look at the temple. 
right? I think if we look at the pattern of the early church, when it comes to things like um, buildings and gathering places and all those sorts of things, there's a brief period of time where they gather in synagogues and the temple, and then very quickly the church was scattered and they started meeting in homes and having to meet in places like catacombs and all those kinds of things. Here's what I'm trying to say. God provided riches to build the temple because that's what God wanted to happen in that moment. God is more than capable, therefore, of providing funds to, for us to do the work that he calls us to do. The question that I think we need to ask ourselves is, what is the work that God calls us to do? Is it to build buildings and organizations and legacies, or is it to have a place to gather that maximizes our ministry to do those two things I mentioned, proclaim the gospel and edify each other. Here's the reason I'm bringing all of these things up. I'm not trying to say the book of Ezra says, here's what we should do as a church. I'm trying to encourage you by saying, God provides for our needs when we need them. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what are our needs? Think about what Paul said. With food and shelter, with food and clothing, and ideally also shelter, we will be content, right? But he also said in the book of Philippians, I know how to, be not, how to, how to have lots and how to, how to have little, how to be full and how to starve, how to be thirsty, how to be, have friends and how to be isolated, how to be free and how to be in jail. Here's the application that I'm trying to make. God will provide what we need we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we need and what is it that God calls us to do as a church? What is God doing in this present moment in our, in our world? God is calling out worshipers in spirit and in truth from every tribe and people and tongue and nation to whom the gospel is proclaimed. We see this in Revelation 5 verse 9. If that's the vision of heaven that people are being called from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, how does that happen? It happens in the intervening period between the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and when Jesus comes back, and that's the period in which we're dwelling. Which means that in some greater or, or lesser way, God is going to use us to proclaim the gospel to see people from a variety of nations come to believe in him. God has sent us out, Matthew 28, to make disciples and to teach them what Jesus and the apostles taught. They will do so, they will become disciples as they hear God's word, Romans chapter 10, with the result that they will become people who worship God in spirit and in truth, not anchored to a temple or a specific geographic location, but assemblies worshiping God throughout the world and someday gathering as God's people for all of eternity. So just as we should not be discouraged if rulers appear to be doing their own thing, going their own way, accomplishing their own plans, we should be reminded as God turned the heart of Cyrus, so too can he turn the heart of our rulers. If we say, how are we going to pay for this thing or that thing or the other thing? How is all this going to work out? What about this detail? What about that detail? What about the other detail? If God can make pagan people under the rule of Cyrus of Persia fund the rebuilding of the temple like he did 
when the people left in the time of the Exodus from Egypt, God is more than capable of providing for our needs as well. And so what should we do then? We should talk to him about those needs. We should ask for wisdom about those needs. And we should not worry about those needs. Because what did Jesus say? Which of you by worrying can add an hour to his life? Can add an inch to his height? How many of you know how many hairs are on your head? Even those of you that shave them, there's still some hairs on your head. How many of you know how many there are? Not one of you. But God does. How many of you know how to take care of all the birds you see flitting around? There's a lot of them this time of year, gathering seeds and all these sorts of things. How many of you know, have hardly any thought of the birds, but God cares for them, God knows for them, God can take care of you as well. And so if God is faithful through rulers in the days of Ezra, God can be faithful through rulers in our day. If God is faithful in providing riches for his people to do the work that he's called them to do, God can be faithful in doing the same thing today. This is not the health and wealth gospel. I'm not saying God's going to make you and I rich. I'm saying God can meet our needs. Even if our understanding of those needs is different from the vision of the church in the 1970s or the 1990s or the 2010s, what we need to be most concerned about is what is God's vision for the church and how does the direction we're going accomplish God's vision for the church in this time and in this place. And then the most exciting, the most important thing, in light of all the things we've been talking about about evangelism in the last month or so, do you eagerly expect God to call out a remnant for himself as he has done in every generation? Think about what God did among the people of Israel. They were carried away in captivity. Every last one of them could have been killed, but God preserved some of them. They could have been mistreated by their captors such that they died in captivity and, and were wiped out as a people then, but God preserved them. They could have been destroyed when a new regime came to power, as happened when Persia conquers Babylon, but God preserves them then. They could have remained in exile for so many generations that they were no longer distinct as a people, but God fulfilled his promise to restore them to the land after 70 years so that the tribes of Judah and Benjamin are restored to the land, unlike the 10 tribes of the north who never really fully came back. If God was capable of providing individual people and preserving them physically, but then also it says here, stirring up their hearts, verse 5, and verse 3 and uh, other places throughout the rest of the book of Ezra, if God's capable of stirring up their hearts to saying, I love God, I follow God, I want to see his work done, the same God is capable of doing that work among the people that you and I tell about Jesus today. If we go for long stretches and we don't see someone visibly and emphatically trust Jesus, that can be very discouraging, right? What I would encourage you with is just like God preserved a remnant in the book of Ezra, just like God says to Paul, and I think it was the city of Corinth, I have many people in this city, God still wants to save people and make disciples through the ministry that he calls us to do. So be faithful to that ministry. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Continue to tell people about Jesus. Continue to call people around you who are already professing to follow God 
back to following God. In the moments that each one of us strays from what we know God wants us to do, keep calling each other back, keep encouraging each other to press forward and not grow weary while doing and not fall away and not betray the faith. And there's, there's negative examples of this in the New Testament. Demas has forsaken because he's loved this present world. John Mark, for a time, goes back home instead of pressing forward in the task that I think God called him to accomplish in his life. Call fellow believers continually to keep following faithfully after God. Call the lost around you to follow after God in the first place. And God will answer those prayers and reward those efforts to call out a remnant for himself in this generation, even as he has done in every other generation up to this point. And so we don't need to despair and say, there's moments I think when we're all tempted to do this, what have I accomplished with my life? Yeah, I had a job, but now I don't work that job anymore. I'm retired. What, what point is there for my life? Yeah, I have kids, but maybe some of them aren't following God the way that I had hoped that they would. Yeah, this thing, the other thing. To the extent that you and I draw breath, God has opportunities to, for us to be used by him to call out a remnant for himself in this generation as he has before. And so what are we supposed to do as we look at the book of Ezra? I think in their day, God was calling them to rejoice in God's faithfulness through the way that he worked in the ruler Cyrus, provided riches for rebuilding the temple, and preserved a remnant of the people. And I think God would call the same for us today. To see his hand at work among the unrighteous rulers of our day, to see how he is more than capable of providing for the needs of our assembly and even us personally as individuals, and to anticipate that he is going to continue to save people and make them his disciples through the work that we're doing if we're faithful to the task that he's called us to. Rejoice in God's faithfulness. Don't lose heart. See how he has worked then and how he will continue to work now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these reminders from the book of Ezra. I pray that as we consider both the differences and the similarities between their experience and ours, that we would see that you are the same God who continues to work even in our day. To the extent that we've lost sight of that and begun to lose hope in the work that we are doing for you, renew our hearts. Revive us again, Lord. Help us to see that you are a faithful God. And then help us to be diligent about the work that you've called us to do. For them, it was the actual physical task of getting on horses and camels and walking and all those things and journeying back to the land of Israel and then setting one stone upon another and rebuilding the temple. For us, it is less a physical labor and very much a spiritual work that through us you are calling fellow believers back to you and unbelievers to begin to follow you in the first place. Give us strength for that task. There is in ways in which it's even more difficult because if you set out to build a building like the temple, eventually it gets finished and the last stone is laid. But the task that you called us to is something that's not finished until Jesus comes back. And so help us not to abandon it, help us not to quit, but to see our moment in the history of your church as our opportunity to serve you faithfully. And maybe we just, spiritually speaking, lay a few bricks in the building that you are building for yourself of people, of souls, and maybe we do a lot. Whichever it is that you've called us to do, Lord, help us to be faithful in that task. 
uh, because you continue to work in our lives and you are faithful to us. We praise you for this in Christ's name. Amen.